0: Well, good morning, and uh, appreciate uh, the worship team and um, and their leadership in that aspect. I was thinking, as uh, as we were worshiping the Lord, that um, <clears throat> kind of the Old Testament model actually was a lot different than what we do. They would worship as a response to the spoken word, the the written. Uh, uh, they would read the word, read the Torah. And then they would t- spend time in worship in response to that, and uh, I'm not announcing that we're going to do anything different, I'm just thinking about that as we get, go- get going here and how um, the Word of God is so powerful, um, and it creates naturally some form of response in our lives. Last week we looked at just two verses in 1 Corinthians, if you're new here just showing up for a week or so or what have you, but we've been studying through 1 Corinthians and we've gotten into the spicy sections of chapter 6 and chapter 7, talking about marital intimacy and then on into chapter 7. We looked at just two verses last week, and I'll read them just only by way of review um, to kind of set the stage for where we're going next. And verse 10 in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says this, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul's addressing married believers. Uh, The Christians there in Corinth had a variety of questions for the Apostle Paul in a letter that we don't have. uh, And so we have to kind of deduce their questions out of his responses and uh one of the first things that they're asking about is what about what about marriage? In fact they had such an immorality issue if you look back to the chapter seven verse one, uh it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's not Paul's statement, that was a slogan that some had in Corinth as a answer to their rampant sexual immorality so some people were thinking no we can do anything we want you can have you can it's it's all right it's it's good and some people are saying, no you can't do anything at all you know no sex at all and Paul addresses those issues in the first nine verses of chapter seven and now he dives into all right here's uh here's what God has to say uh, with complete consistency and Teaching from Jesus that we looked at last week out of all four Gospels when it comes to marriage. But he says straightforwardly, these marital commands, do not depart if you do, remain single or reconcile, and do not divorce. Which has brought up a lot of questions, and I expected there to be a lot of questions through the course of the week. Uh, questions like, uh, what about abandonment? Uh, we're going to get into that today what about situations involving abuse what about unfaithfulness what does it even mean to reconcile how do we do that we're going to spend the majority of our time around that particular concept what does it mean to reconcile i'll stop and pause only to go back and say that uh, <clears throat> situations involving abuse is to call the cops call the, call the law enforcement God created and instituted government. Romans 13 says that very clearly, that, that government is, is instituted by God to punish evildoers and reward good. And so if you are in a situation, or if you have been, or if you're concerned about that in any way, uh, you can definitely come and talk to anyone in leadership here. But generally speaking, if the law is being broken, we're going to tell you, call the law. God will use our civil authority in a way to deal with issues uh, in ways that you can't, in ways that I can't. So I don't make any I don't make any hesitation about that at all. If the law's being broke, the law needs to be the answer to that particular situation, even if it's in regards to uh, marital struggles and strife and conflict. And so I'll just say that straight up front. Uh, <laughs> might be the first time you've heard this in church, because I have a lot of big eyes looking at me like, really? Uh, Really. I'll just say it. That's where it's at. Right? Uh, In the old days, in the old days, it was handled a little differently. You might have situations where you have two guys that step out in the middle of a dirty street and square off with pistols. That was socially normal at one time. It's not socially normal now. I do not suggest or condone and and I'm getting i I'm getting a couple of dudes that are looking around like, Really? Shucks Like I would like to resolve a conflict around those areas where the ladies getting whooped on. I, I'm I'm telling you, in the flesh, like there's ways, you know, there's ways and means in the woods, they say. Let the law do its job. God instituted government for your protection for for rewarding those that are good and punishing those that are evil. I don't want to preach all of Romans 13, but that's the quick and fast summary. Uh, We heard a great testimony actually last week, and I would encourage you to jump on and listen to the message. You can get on our website or find us on Apple Podcast. From last week, we heard a great testimony at the end of last week's message about a marriage that was broken for a lot of years. Five years to be exact, and Brock, I want to thank you for... Uh, being prompted by the holy spirit to to share your testimony and how that it's it's bizarre really the intersections between this this place that god has established uh this property and uh what god's doing in somebody else's life that that uh that just shows up and, and all of that conflict and all that goes with that and how god has miraculously brought you and Michelle back together praise the lord for that we can all say amen to that um, and repaired their marital bonds. And, and, and there's work to do, work to go. I would say that that's a fair assessment. Like, like it's a work in progress. And we need to do a better job. I want to go here. Uh, we've talked about this as, as the elder board. We've talked about this idea that we need to do a better job of celebra- celebrating the victories. Like a lot of times, and I will admit that a lot of my messages are pretty, pretty heavy. <laughs> like, like it's sometimes like a heavy, wet uh, quilt. Uh, and, and, and I don't make any apology for that because I think the Word of God is, is very straightforward about a lot of issues that Christians aren't being straightforward about. And so when we get there in the Bible, uh, that's kind of my approach. But on the other side of it all is that I believe as a church, we need to do a way better job of celebrating the victories, the wins that God is doing in and amongst us and uh and and Brock and michelle 's story is only one of those uh, you 're going to hear uh, from somebody else um, this next week correct amen. Uh, Daniel is going to share a little bit this next week and um, uh, from their story and it's a good it's encouraging to look back and see what God has done in and amongst us and in our lives, whether that's personally, whether that's uh, issues corporately, whether it's issues of our family, or issues of our marriage. And we need to celebrate and draw inspiration from that. And um, so, just encourage us to do a better job of sharing that even on a one-on-one basis. Um, So what is reconciliation? What is reconciliation? Why does Paul in verse... Eleven, there. First Corinthians seven. Why does he, why does he bring in that, and, and what does it mean? Why should we reconcile? Why is Paul adamant about that component of it all? And really, what's the biblical pattern and example of reconciliation? Simply stated, this. If you want to, my definition of reconciliation, it's this: it's the restoration of unity within a relationship that God has established. It's the restoration of unity within. A relationship that God has established so it's not limited to Paul's applying it to our marital relationships but it's not limited to that in its totality Uh, he's gonna apply it there we're gonna talk about it in that context but it's the restoration of unity within a relationship that God has established Uh, you can uh, apply that in a broad form We can look back, actually, and the Bible is packed full of examples of relationships that were broken and then reconciled. Just a few here, just a few that came to my mind that I listed out. How about this relationship? How about Adam and Eve's relationship with God in Genesis 3? Broken, then reconciled. It was different, definitely different. We can read that in Genesis 3. It was different, but it was restored. How about Jacob's relationship with Esau in Genesis thirty-two? Jacob, who had who is his very name means deceiver, uh, swindler, the very guy that for his whole life, with his mom's encouragement, deceived everybody, including his dad, his brother, his father-in-law. Everybody was deceived by this guy. He he was he was a jerk. This guy was like if you read through the story, you get to. Genesis 32, though, and the the hinge point for Jacob is his coming together and having a little meeting with God, wrestling with God. And from that point on in the storyline, his life was totally different. And in Genesis 32, we see where Jacob's relationship with his brother, who he had stole his birthright from Esau, where their relationship is then restored, and it's, it's an interesting read. You see a completely different Jacob. You see a, a humble Jacob. You see a contrite Jacob. You see a guy that's fearful because no, he knows that his brother and his tribe are larger uh, than his own and could take them out if they wanted to. You see a completely different Jacob than you see in the previous chapters there in Genesis. How about this one? Joseph's relationship with his brothers. Genesis 42. Joseph, the youngest brother, was uh, was his a favorite. He was kind of a cocky teenager. Thought he had it all going on. He 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 had this, the affections of his dad. And uh, all of his brothers are jealous. And so as brothers do, as older brothers do to younger brothers, they take him out and they, you know, beat him up a little bit. And they decide, ah, maybe we shouldn't kill him. And... Uh, Jacob's ends up in slavery and, and uh, Egypt comes back. And in Genesis 42 is the beautiful reunion between Joseph and his brothers who now have fallen on hard times, uh, who are out of food, out of a place to live, have next to nothing, the whole family is ready to die. And uh, Joseph, who God had raised up and prepared, even though he was in jail multiple times for doing what was right, uh, Joseph still ends up in a position to be reunited with his brothers, and that relationship then becomes reconciled. Uh, and it's a beautiful story there, Genesis 42. Write that, write that down and look it up if you wish. Here's another one, <clears throat> next book, Moses, Relationship with the Hebrews. Moses, who was raised Egyptian, who God spared, was raised Egyptian, knew he was Hebrew, uh, decided that that God was the one to call him to uh, rescue his people, so his first attempt was completely in the flesh, uh, that, which put him at odds with the people, which put him out in the, into the desert to become a shepherd. I will say, and insert this, that um, farming is a great, <laughs> it's a great preparer of those that are ready to lead people. And Joseph comes back, God talks to him in a burning bush, and Moses comes back in Exodus chapter 4, and that relationship with the people is restored in a way that, that he is able to be used by God and lead his people out into freedom. And if you know the story, uh, that relationship was uh, tenuous at best many times, uh, yet God was faithful, God was faithful to work through Moses and, uh, and lead his people out. Uh, David's relationship with the Lord, actually, is another one that was restored. David, who's uh, the shepherd boy, became king. The strife and struggle with King Saul. uh, David's ascension onto the... the, uh, to be the king of Israel, which was the height... historically was the height of the uh, Jewish empire. In fact, today, even today in Israel... They want that empire back, Israelis do. That's the era, the era where David was the king of Israel, that's the era that they look at with the most amount of fondness. They want that back. And of course, David, who fell to temptation of lust, fell into adultery with Bathsheba, and... uh, all that goes with that whole story there in Second Samuel, by the time you get to Second Samuel chapter 12, David's confronted by the prophet Nathan and David's relationship with God. He, he humbles himself, he repents. Uh, he paid a heavy toll because the baby that him and Bathsheba had uh, died in infancy. So he paid a heavy consequence for that sin. Uh, but his relationship with God is not restored. It's not reconciled really until 2 Samuel chapter 12. Another great read. How about New Testament stuff? I'll give you two. Peter's relationship with Jesus. Uh, Peter, Jesus' first disciple, uh, the guy that was always quick to speak and slow to think, that kind of guy, the kind of guy that I could kind of relate with at times. Uh, he constantly putting his foot in his mouth, yet he's having these profound sayings You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, all these types of things that, that Peter is right on, and then turn around and, you know, Jesus is rebuking him like 10 sentences later. You know, get behind me, Satan. That kind of guy. The guy that said he would never deny Christ and then denied him three times. And a beautiful story in John chapter 21 where Jesus restores and reconciles Peter to himself. Just simply says, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Just feed my sheep. The last one is kind of an interpersonal relationship between the Apostle Paul and his relationship with a young guy named John Mark who had abandoned them on a missionary journey, thought he was all in, thought he was ready to go, thought he was dedicated, believed he was called, and gets to a certain spot in the journey and basically bails on the Apostle Paul. And Second Timothy chapter 4 records just a single sentence where you see this reconciliation between these two uh, the apostle and is one of his proteges at a time, where he just simply says, "Bring, uh, bring John Mark with me." He tells Timothy, "Bring John Mark; he's profitable to me." And there was kind of a reconnection there. We don't have lots of details; we just see a simple, simple sentence in there where the apostle Paul has has uh, reconciled that relationship and says, "Hey, bring him with him." Just a few biblical highlights of reconciliation, and the reason that we must embrace, and I highlight that in my notes, the reason that we must embrace the reconciliation of relationships is perhaps this reason. It is the greatest demonstration of God's power, love, healing, and forgiveness for us and in us. For us and in us. It's a, it's a marvelous demonstration of what God can do, and so if we want to zoom back to First Corinthians chapter 7, and apply now, we'll zoom in and talk about marital reconciliation. It's the greatest demonstration of God's love and forgiveness, His grace and His mercy, His power to work in a relationship. And that happens both for us, and it happens in us, and it happens for His glory. It happens for God's glory. God leading two people to reconcile their relationship. It's just not about them. I hate to burst anybody's bubble. It's just not about you. Not solely about you. It's about God and what He can do. And His purposes are always point towards His power and His glory. That demonstration of unity uh, is seen in our marriages, for sure. Even if we're not on the same page theologically... That power of reconciliation can be demonstrated, the unity can be demonstrated, and it can be seen in marriages, even if even if a husband and wife are not on the same page about what they believe. And that's where Paul goes next. There's a difference between being unequally yoked before and after marriage. Do we get that? There's a difference between being unequally yoked yoked before and after marriage that's a biblical term we find it really this idea of being unequally yoked and i know that in the young adult bible study they've been uh, or sunday school they've been talking about the preparation for marriage and they've been talking about these concepts of of what does it mean to and how do we examine and and how do we discern uh, a potential spouse and i know that this concept has come up in second corinthians chapter six actually is where we find this idea, where the Apostle Paul says. So, next letter, we'll come back to First Corinthians chapter seven. But in Second Corinthians six, in just a few verses here, the Apostle Paul says this: It's the warning for being unequally yoked comes before marriage. Really, he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with be- <clears throat> Bilal? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As, <clears throat> as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The Apostle Paul's... Uh, concern here in the next book, not the book we're in, but the next book, is is that <clears throat> we enter into relationships where there's not uh, there's there's not the same belief, there's not the same uh, understanding of who God is. In fact, there's not the same worship where one person was worshiping idols and 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 in, involved in idolatry or not at all. And somebody else was worshiping God, and he says, hey, whoa, whoa, why, why would you yoke yourselves together in business or in any other format, especially in marriage, why would you yoke yourselves together with somebody that's not a believer? I will say to the young ladies that are unmarried, why in the world would you uh, be, turn an affection or, or turn your attention to a young guy that is not ready to lead you spiritually? That's not even a believer at all. In fact, studies show, uh, by far, by far, a young lady will, will be ready to marry a young man who's not a believer in hopes that she can convert him to Christianity. Like, in the high 90 percentile, it goes that way, rather than a, a believing young man with a non-believing young lady hoping that she would be converted. Statistics are, are really heavy the other way, right? Young ladies, you've you got to really be paying attention. Parents, you've got to really be paying attention for your daughters, especially husbands, fathers. You need to be paying attention on behalf of your daughters that they're marrying somebody eventually that's ready to be the leader of their home and somebody that follows Christ. So the encouragement on the unequally yoked side comes prior to marriage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 then, the verses that we're going to turn to, is uh, Paul's statement of what happens after you're married. What if you're unequally yoked and, and, uh, uh, or, or maybe neither one was believers and one became a believer, now what do you do? That's really the scenario. And that's where the Apostle Paul goes and that's where we're going to pick it back up. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 12 says this, But to the rest <clears throat> I, not the Lord, say, I'll pause there just to simply say that all of the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And uh, there's some people that would take this and say, well, this is just Paul's opinion, it's not inspired. That's inaccurate theology. All of it's inspired by the Lord. And he says this, he says, But but to the rest, so those that have mixed marriages, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her and a woman who has a husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her let him not divorce let her not divorce him the simple encouragement is this do all that you can do to make it work do all that you can do believer if you're in this situation to make it work and divorce is not the go to solution to being unequally yoked in marriage. You already have the ring on your finger. You've already made a covenant with your spouse and before the Lord and before other witnesses. That part's done. So he's not talking. And there was some concern in Corinth with some people saying, well, if we're unequally yoked, then we probably should get divorced because our spouses doesn't believe the same. So there's some that was kind of leaning that way and Paul said, no, 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 no. Hold on. Hold on. And he puts the marriage covenant at the top, not of the issue, not secondary, not at the bottom. He upholds the marriage covenant, as Christ did as well, that we saw in the Gospels. He holds it up at the top. So the first point really for today is this, is that believers must do all they can do to build unity and to make a marriage work. Believers must do all they can to build unity and to make a marriage work. Paul says that that <clears throat> Paul says that the obligation then falls on the unbeliever. That's where you see these statements. If they are willing. So for the believer you need to do all you can do to follow Christ. Stay married. Stay in there. L- allow God to work in the other person. The obligation is on really the unbeliever. And where are they going to go with it. If they're willing is the statement. We can't control what others may or may not decide to do. But we're responsible for ourselves in this sense, as Christ followers, have we done all that we can do, and are we willing to let the results lie at the foot of the cross? Are we we ready to let the results of this type of marriage be up to God? Paul goes on to say this in verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Uh, straightforwardly, Paul refers to the Jew- some Jewish concepts here to convey a point about the importance of honoring our wedding covenant, even though one spouse is not a Christ follower. Here's his point. Nonbelievers and their kids are in a special category. Non-believing s- spouses... And your kids end up in kind of this special category. Uh, I can speak with a fair amount of experience. Because this is the environment I grew up in. So So when I read these verses, and I look back over 50 years, I can say, hey, that was my life. That's the environment that I grew up in. And so i i'm aware of i'm aware of of that, and i it's not a special spot like like uh, that. There's no that there's some you know guarantee that you're insulated from life. That's not it. It's it, here's what I can say. It's not pain free. It's not pain free. It's not sin free. It's not that type of category, and it's not free from the consequences of sin. And I think that we've heard, and you can look back, if you haven't been here, you can go back and review some previous messages, you've heard my testimony of the things that I was involved in. And so it wasn't like somehow God had bubble wrap around me and my sisters, because we were in this category, and we lived this, you know, utopian life. That wasn't it at all. It definitely wasn't true for them, because I (laughs) picked on unmercifully. So... But here's what else I can say about it. Is there's a grace that's hard to explain at the time. That there's a peace that's hard to explain at the time. That there's a love that's hard to explain at the time. And there's forgiveness, really, that was hard to explain in those growing up years at that time. Right? And so I lived in that environment. Most of you that know me know about my mom sitting right here. And uh, so she was the believing half of the couple. There were times, especially this time of year, summertime, where there was a Sunday morning tension that was just always, always present. My dad would need my help because he had some project. He had some farming, you know, thing that needed to happen or, or whatever. And uh, mom was making it a priority. I want my kids. I want, you know, she'd say, Harley, these kids got to go to church. They don't need to go to church. You know, I need some help. It's not going to happen tomorrow. School starts tomorrow. Or he's got practice or she's got practice or they got this, or they got that. And so Sunday really became this battleground. Fair enough? This battleground for in that believing, unbelieving scenario. Hard to explain. Sometimes it was hard to be a part of that. And as a new believer, when I got into my 20s, Uh, I spent actually a fair amount of time just praying and seeking the Lord. Like, why did I grow up in this spiritually divided home? What was God's purpose in that? Why, uh, you know, what, what was, what was God preparing me for? And there was a season as a new believer, you know, and, and working daily with my dad and the farming business that we had, you know, I thought, all right, I know what it is. I know what it is. Uh it's my job to convert this guy. It's like, oh, big mistake. I did more damage than I did good in, for about a year or so before I finally figured that out because I was just like, oh, okay, so he's into evolution. Bam, 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 get to all the Ken Ham CDs and books and, you know, I just tried to flood him with all of this, you know, creation research. Uh, didn't work. Didn't work at all. You know, and I try this approach and I try a different approach and and, and I try to get philosophical with him because he's a you know college educated uh, you know four-year degree type of guy. And so I thought, well I'll try philosophy. Didn't work. You know, and I and I just took this approach and that approach thinking this must be why I grew up in a spiritually divided home, because it's my job to convert this guy. And the more that I got closer to this answer for that, it's not my job it's my job to live as Christ would want me to live it's my job to reflect Jesus to this guy not try to be a you know on the other side of the debate stage with him and try to win him over the more I got closer and started to understand what God was doing in that the better our relationship got the better our relationship got and the answer came then years later because dad became a believer just a few months before he passed away we saw this tremendous change in a guy that was so resistant to God. This, I'll give you a little clue. This guy grew up 100 yards from a church. He grew up right across the road, right across the street, from the only church in his community. And so it wasn't like there was a lack of access. He didn't live in the middle of Montana where there was nobody around. He grew up right in the midst of a community filled full of believers. In fact, many of his closest friends were strong believers. In fact, one of his closest friends was the guy that started this church, Don Bo. They worked together for years. So it wasn't for lack of access. And it wasn't because it was up to me. It was simply the fact that our job as believers in these scenarios, whether you're the spouse that's a believer married to a non-believer or a child in this scenario, your job is pretty simple, really. It's just simply to follow Christ. And allowed Jesus to live through you. We saw a tremendous change even in the few weeks that he had left before he passed away. A tremendous change in his countenance. Tremendous change in his attitude. Uh, he, was, he was really delightful. We praise the Lord for that and for those signs. Even though he couldn't talk at the time, you could really see his disposition had changed. But the idea is really this is there are always opportunities. There's always an opportunity. Always an opportunity to share Christ with people. And sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes we have to come to this conclusion that those opportunities that you share, or that that you're a part of, they're just going to be disregarded. And that's not on you. That's on the other person. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7 says this, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So Paul's really laying out this case here. You do all you can do to build unity. If if your unbelieving spouse is willing to, to stay with you, Awesome, great, keep following the Lord, keep praying for Him. In fact, we see in other places in the Word where it's just not even a word spoke. And that was really kind of a little bit of uh, my experience. The less I talked about God and just demonstrated God to my dad, I think the more curious he became. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage. Underline in your word, that word bondage or circle it because it's critical that we understand what's being communicated here. They're not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. There's a stark difference between bondage, this word that we see here in verse 15, this word bondage and the word bound that we find in verse 27. We won't get there today, but for the sake of today, skim down in your Bible and look at that. Verse 27 says this, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. So, this word bound and bondage, in our English understanding, they sound very similar. They sound related. In other words, if you're in bondage, you're probably bound up. And if you're bound up, well, somebody has you in bondage, but not really the same in the Greek. The Greek word for bondage is doulo, and that means to enslave, literally or figuratively to bring into or be under bondage or to be a servant that's what bondage means we think of we think of uh, what's going on in our culture today around the globe the amount of sex trafficking that's happening the, the young men and women uh, that are drawn uh, or stolen into those horrific situations they become in that sense they become enslaved okay they become enslaved they be, they're they're the kids that are stuffed into a shipping container put on a boat and brought across seas to for horrific acts that's bondage that's enslavement that's enslavement biblically biblically from page 1 to the last bondage is this it's a picture of sin bondage is a picture of sin in the bible right by contrast when we look at the word bound in the greek it's dio And it means to bind, to be in bonds, but it means this also, to knit, or to tie, or to wind together. Biblically bound is the primary description of a married couple. They're knit together, they're wound together like a rope. Uh, From that Greek word is where we get our word, glue. You think, of the, you think of what glue does. Now, if you're, if you're a glue aficionado like I am, I don't buy anything but Gorilla Glue because it's the best there is, right? Everything else, Elmer's, your day's past. We've moved on to Gorilla Glue, right? And when you glue something together with Gorilla Glue, it's going to stay, right? That's where we get that word. That's where the word glue, and you think about it in the, the context of, of uh, marriage, think of that word bound we're bound together my dad actually speaking of my dad uh he was always kind of uh his humor kind of was uh, quirky to say the least but uh <coughs> he would uh modify words or use a different word to mean something else and so i remember real clearly we were headed out one saturday morning uh headed to a wedding but he never called it a wedding did he what do you call it? Nope, a welding. Are you ready to go to the welding? <laughs> now, think about the Greek word and the explanation, and tell me he was wrong. If you know anything about welding at all, and we have some we have some professionals here, you think that he's exactly right. When a couple gets married, they're bound together they're now welded together in what was two pieces of metal when Tim puts it on the bench and goes to putting them together to build something he takes two pieces and he bonds them together in a way where they are what where they're one with purpose I'm gonna add that there's a purpose for what's going on God has a purpose in our coming together to go to a welding to watch two people get married, right? It's all right. It's fun to laugh. This idea that if, there's a big F there in verse 15. The idea is is that if the unbeliever departs, then the believer is not in bondage or in sin for the other person's decision to leave, that's what Paul's saying. Nowhere do I find that then that the word "bound" is inserted to say that you're unbound. You're just not in sin. You're not. You're not linked in to whatever that other person's going to do. Non-believer, already living a sinful life, already according to Romans, you know. Uh, under judgment for their unbelief so a believer then in that situation if an unbeliever leaves is not in bondage they're not linked to that person and their sinfulness their decision to abandon their wedding vows and move on very critical point that we understand what the language has to say here and where Paul's thinking is and God has called us to live in peace God has called us to live in peace. And that happens when we take responsibility for our own actions, receive forgiveness, and let God's work in that situation. My constant encouragement for anybody in these types of situations is, is you believer, you own your own portion of the issue. And I've said this multiple times over the last years to different people. I simply state it this way. You Open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. Open yourself up to the Lord and say, all right, in, in, in this dire situation where the partner's leaving, what, Father, what have I done? Go through my life, review my life. What have I done in a way that is, that is sinful towards you or sinful towards the other and reveal it to me so then I can agree with you that it's sin, seek your forgiveness and I can receive forgiveness from the other person even if they're leaving. But I can be clear. I don't have to be under that that bondage. I don't have to be handcuffed to wherever that person is going to embrace or wherever they're going to move on to or whoever else they're going to move on I don't have to be linked into that part of their sinful activity. I can be clear and I can have a fresh conscience in this regard. That's my encouragement in those scenarios. Make sure that you handle your part, then let God work in the situation. And I can recount story after story after story throughout the pages of the Bible where God did a miraculous thing and turned somebody back around. So we can't give up on God's process too soon just because we run out of patience. God's goal is always reconciliation. His goal is always reconciliation. Verse 16, 1 Corinthians 7 says this, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, oh husband, whether you will save your wife? The goal is for everyone to experience forgiveness and a new life in Christ. So how are you going to know? How are you going to know if you don't own your own stuff? If you don't stay in the right relationship with the Lord? You don't follow what the Bible clearly says about these issues. How are you going to know? The biblical pattern and example for reconciliation of our marriages and relationships is really found in two, ver- in two passages. The first one's Romans chapter 5, and the second one we'll look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So you're getting a little bit of a peek forward into 2 Corinthians. <coughs> Before we go there, let's look at Romans chapter 5, and notice what's going on here in the process, and carefully note... Who does what and why? Carefully note who does what and why. Romans chapter 5 reads this way. I'll start in verse 6. For when you were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So Paul writing here to the believers in Romans, laying out their foundation of faith and, and uh, <clears throat> really a, a, a quite a literary piece even Throughout the, uh, the ages, the book of Romans is looked at from a, a, a law perspective. It's probably one of the best. It was a case study for hundreds and hundreds of years for anybody going to law school. But he lays out this simple point for when you were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7 says this, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good one, a good man someone would even dare to die. So that's kind of the, the, the worldly view, the aspect from uh, uh, you know, one person to another. Would I jump in front of a bullet? Would I sacrifice myself in a dire situation? Yeah. Yeah, many do. Many do. It's relatively scarce, the word says, but when it comes to our eternal state, he, Paul goes on in verse 8 and says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us That while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, carefully note who does what and why. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And we're to follow Christ's example in this. Notice this, in the midst of our sin, Jesus dies for you and I sacrificially. Not after we we're cleaned up. Not after we had attended church for a couple years. Definitely not after we got baptized. Not after we had paid some sort of penance. Not after we had done this or done that. No, the word of God's really clear. Part of the process of reconciliation is somebody died while the other person was still in sin. In Jesus' death, then we're made right. The word that he uses here is justified. Much more than having now been justified, we're made right by the blood, by Christ's blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Again, noting who's doing what and why and if we were so sinful and we were then the salvation is really that much more and it is and it is like this should be earth shattering still in our own minds even if you've been a believer for decades and decades and decades the fact that that you could be saved that I could be saved I know my own sin I know my own history my own past I'm still blown away when I read these verses That Jesus would die for me? Really? That guy? That 19-year-old hypocrite? Why would he do that? It doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. Not from our perspective, but it's part of God's plan. So if we were so sinful, and I'll say, and I was, then the salvation that we receive is that much more, and it is. We should live in a constant state of thankfulness and rejoicing that we've been reconciled. We've been made right. God has brought us to him in this process of reconciliation. And we should be partying because of that. We should be, uh, and I use that word in celebration, not in, uh, you know, high school kids out in the woods with a bunch of pickups backed up around a bonfire. Not that type of partying. But the party, that's a celebration. Look what he says here. And not only that, but we also rejoice, we party, we celebrate, we celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Jesus' message, right from the get-go, is the kingdom's here, and the kingdom's a whole new way to think and act and believe and carry on, And I'm bringing it, and it's going to make this world upside down. It's going to change everything. And what changes everything is the fact that you and I, I'll speak personally, that I could be rescued. That my sins could be paid for, that your sins could be paid for, and I could be made right with God. And that relationship that was broken since the garden, broken since Adam and Eve disobeyed God, Chose not to follow God, broken ever since the very second that they that they started to reconsider this idea that, man, God's hiding holding out on me. God's got something better. He's 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 holding out on me. So they took the bait. Don't take the bait. (laughs) Don't take the bait. But ever since that moment, to the moment that you became a Christ follower, you were living sinfully. And Jesus still died for you, and he still died for me. And he reconciled our relationship, which was once broken, which was once perfect. In fact, the gospel doesn't start just with the brokenness. The gospel starts really in Genesis 1 with perfection. A lot of people think that the gospel starts just with this, oh, just low down, no good sinners, which is true. But that's not all of history. The beginning is is it was once perfect. It was once right. It was once without shame. When sin entered, shame entered. And as human beings, we've been pulling fig leaves over ourselves ever since. And Jesus says, enough of that. I'm going to die so you don't have to live in shame. I'm going to die so that your relationship with a holy God can be restored. It can be, as he uses this word, made right or reconciled. That's our message as well. That should be the message on our lips as well. And we see that in Second Corinthians chapter five, verses seventeen through twenty-one, which is the ministry of reconciliation. It's the message of reconciliation. And Paul writing this as well says this in verse 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become what? They've become new. They've become new. Who doesn't like something that's new? Right? Raise your hand. If you don't like anything that's new, I see no hands. I see no hands. Of course, everybody loves something that's new. Verse 18 says, Now that all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, again, the same point of Romans chapter 5, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, verse 20 says, as though God were pleading through us, we implored you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we have God reconciling us to himself and we have this ministry then that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 has given us the ministry of reconciliation, committed to us the word of reconciliation and we're labeled something completely new. We're labeled ambassadors for Christ. That you can be reconciled to God. That you can be reconciled to a holy God who's not going to ignore your sin but is... <clears throat> but has provided payment for your sin through the blood of Christ. Now, what does that have to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 7? What do these two passages have to do with the reconciliation of broken marriages? Everything about a broken marriage that, that in the process of reconciliation is based upon what Jesus did for you as an individual. There's the power, there's the pathway, there's a the provision for grace and love and mercy, there's a the provision of forgiveness. You can't forgive if you haven't received Christ's forgiveness. Let's just be honest with where it is. So everything is there, the whole the whole pattern, the whole template is laid out for 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and reconciling earthly relationships because we have somebody that's reconciled. The hardest relationship has actually already been reconciled and that's our relationship with God. Right? So reconciling earthly relationships then, especially marriage, is based upon the work of Jesus on the cross reconciling us back to himself. That's the pattern. And if Jesus is powerful enough to reconcile you to himself, you have to ask this question if you're in that scenario or if you're encouraging somebody in this, in this very scenario, then is Jesus powerful enough to reconcile your broken relationships? That's the question on the table. Because we like to believe, we, we, we embrace the first part. We, em, we embrace God reconciling us because we're like, whew, don't have to go there. We don't have to fry. We like that part. The harder question, which is actually the easier process, <laughs> is what about our interpersonal relationships? What about our marital relationships? And if Jesus is powerful enough to be resurrected from the dead, to prove his power over sin and death, the payment through his blood, then is he powerful enough to reconcile broken relationships? And I say this absolutely. Absolutely, he is. Absolutely, he is. And we have countless uh, examples, both in the pages of Scripture. And also, uh, other people's testimony of what, and we, we heard one of those last week at the end of the service. Like, it, it was dead in the ground. Am I wrong? Like, it was non existent five years. Most people, after a year or two, write it off. Is Jesus powerful enough? Did that, did that question ring in your ears, Brock? Is Jesus powerful enough to fix my marriage? I would say that, that was, that's a good guess to say that that question rang in his ears for quite a while. The answer is absolutely because if Jesus is powerful enough to reconcile mankind back to himself and bring a solution for everything that happened for thousands of years and then everything that would happen after Christ's resurrection for now a couple thousand years and for however long we go on from here, if he's provided that kind of powerful solution to reconcile mankind to himself, what makes us think that he wouldn't do that for a man and a wife that are struggling? What makes he, what, what, <clears throat> take it out of the marriage context and put it into relationships of friends? Why would we think that God would not heal friendships or would be not powerful enough to heal friendships if he could already heal the most broken relationship that there is? Too many have given up too soon in the struggle. Too many have given up too soon in the struggle. And dealing with a, uh, a person in that was in the midst of this very scenario here, my encouragement was as they shared their story, this is some time back, my, uh, he says, "What do you think?" And I said, uh, "You're giving up too soon." That was my, <laughs> that was my free Bible degree response. I said, "The story's not even written yet, and you're checking out. Why would you do that? Why would you, why would you short circuit?" And essentially confess that God has no more power to work in this situation, which was essentially the story, which was essentially his posture. Why would you say that? Don't you believe in the Lord? He claimed to be a believer. He claimed to be a Christ' follower. So why would you now come to a situation where you think that it's impossible for God to fix a situation when He fixed the most impossible scenario that mankind even knows? Throughout history, why would you do that? Was my I just kept pressing. Why would you, Why are you giving up early in the story? Why would you do that? Can't God fix this situation? Absolutely can. Interpersonally, between friends, why would you do that? Why would you give up on a relationship with your your best buddy or or ladies your you know best gal friend uh, because it seems un. Unre- <coughs> to say that something's unreconcilable is more of a statement about what you believe about God than what you believe about the relationship that's in peril and that's pretty hard straightforward truth but that's where it's at to say something is irre- unrecyc- uh, unrecyclable <laughs> that might be a good twist <laughs> That's my father's genetics coming out in me. <laughs> to some, to say something, to say that that's irrecycle. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to say it again. All right. Speaking of recycle, to say something that is a relationship is cannot be. relationships that cannot be reconciled hey you pay you get what you pay for (laughs) to say something or to believe that or to act upon that really is a a statement of what you believe about the lord and i know that that's a difficult statement to hear perhaps It's not meant with judgment. It's not meant with uh, condemnation. But I've walked this out several times with different people. And the same pattern continues to emerge that I see. And as Christ followers, we're not called to that pattern of thought and belief. And... uh, The, the reality is, is that maybe that was you at a previous time. Maybe, maybe, and, and, and you had no belief in God. And maybe through all the crash and burn and the ashes and the carnage and, the, and, and, and all that comes with that, that then later comes your rescue. I get that. I understand that. And so then you can look back and say, actually, you could agree and say, yeah, kind of that was my thinking. Like it wasn't there and I, I, really, I didn't really care what God thought. And, and, but now I do. And today's a na- new day then. And this is a new life for you, if that was your scenario, to really embrace then what the Word of God has to say about this situation and to live that out and to, and to not hide behind the fig leaf of that prior shame, see, receive forgiveness for those types of things, receive forgiveness for that thinking, that, that unbiblical, sinful attitude or, or, or whatever, and then do something extra. Because once you've been forgiven for that, then you're set free. So use that freedom then, moving forward. Use that position. Leverage that story in somebody else's life. And sometimes that comes through a little bit of conflict. Sometimes that comes through a little bit of challenge or hard work. Sometimes it comes just through bumping into somebody that, you know, starts. And let me tell you, when a lot of people, when they're pressed... Their mouths just start to, they just start to rattle da, 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 and, and, and they'll tell you all their business, okay discern what they're saying, and if that was your past life and you were stuck in that spot, encourage them to go somewhere different. don't not say anything don't 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 just you know say, eh, hope it gets better no use the lessons that you've learned use use. What you've learned about the Word of God and about your situation to make and to encourage somebody else's situation to go in a better way. That's our response. That's picking up that message of reconciliation and running with it. Saying, hey, I've done it wrong. I've done it wrong. Can I encourage you to go right? Like, let me share you my story. Let me show you how, and let me tell you about how God has fixed, uh, fixed me up. Because I tried and tried for decades and it didn't work. Can I share something with you? And encourage people to go the right way. That's picking up and, and leveraging this ministry of reconciliation that that God has given us, that Paul talks about in two different passages and demonstrates in many more. But too many times we run the kind of the hypothetical situations rather than leaning into the Word of God and resting upon his good plan. Take his good plan and leverage it in a good way in somebody else's life. That's my encouragement walking out of here. That's my encouragement in this area. Don't sell it short. Don't turn off the tape. Let, let, let God work and, and, and run out the tape of your life and watch what he can do. Don't give up on him too soon. Don't give up on him too soon. He has a good plan for you even if you're in a tight spot. In fact, the majority of the awesome stories in the Bible are all these, in, these incredible odds, these impossible situations. No one would ever think that they would prevail. Who would think that a scrawny little teenage boy would go up against the best warrior in the world at the current day, right? And take him down. Bang, 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 right? And guess what he did then? And that's only part of the story when we think about David and Goliath and that huge victory. But David did something even as equally as important as taking out the the other team's best warrior is he took his sword, he cut the guy's head off, and he paraded that testimony around all over town. He says, look what God did. Look what God did. It was ugly. It was dripping with blood. It was gory. It's one of the Glorious scenes in the Bible. And David's running around town saying, look what God did. Look what God did in this incredible situation. Absolutely impossible. It wasn't me. I was there. He used me. But look what God did to overcome this crazy situation. That's what I think about and that's what I want to encourage us with as we transition as David comes to Lead us in communion. That's the type of getting out there and ministering to other people and sharing the story of reconciliation. Sharing the ministry of reconciliation. That God has a great plan for them. That he wants them first to be reconciled with him and then reconciled with other people. David will come on up. He'll lead us in Communion, and then the worship team will share uh, our last song of worship to close this <coughs> to close the service. So, David. in of itself a great communion message. We are going to celebrate communion and it really is the greatest reconciliation